You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Chapter 10, verse 17 to 27, and you'll find it on the Church Bibles at page 897. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up, knelt down before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You do not murder, do not commit adultery. Do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honour your mother and father. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these from my youth. Looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, You lack one thing, go, sell all you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. But he was dismayed by this demand, and he went away grieving because he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were astonished at his words. Again, Jesus said to them, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. They were even more astonished, saying to one another, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With man it is impossible, but not with God because all things are possible with God. This is the word of the Lord. Yes, please take a seat. I'm really glad that Jesus just reminded us of that fact, that all things are possible with God, because what I am planning to do here this morning is absolutely impossible. Addressing a a topic like consumerism, and with the goal of prying us free from our enslavement to consumerism is absolutely impossible, but absolutely essential if we are to faithfully follow Jesus in daily discipleship to him. Absolutely vital that we are set free from bondage to buying stuff, bondage to consumerism. It's absolutely vital. And here's my big statement, right? Of all these issues that we're looking at in this series, and probably all the issues that you can think of that Christians are facing today, this issue is the biggest threat to our daily discipleship to Jesus. The biggest threat to our daily faithfully following him. The reason why is because most of us fail 
if we were going to make a list of the biggest threats to our daily discipleship or the biggest issues facing the Christian church today, most of us would not name this one. This is a a deceptive issue. Jesus names frequently, he names greed as a deceptive force. It's the kind of thing that sneaks up on you in a way that adultery or drunkenness or gambling doesn't. Greed is deceptive and consumerism is not something that occurs to us as being any kind of issue because for most of us, unless you have lived a significant period of time in a very few places in the world, then you have grown up assuming that this way of living is normal and fine. That the consumption of goods and the arrangement of our lives around getting money so that we can consume is so normal to us that most of us fail to identify the problem. There's this parable, you know, where there's a couple of fish swimming down the footpath somewhere under the sea and uh, just having a chat and then a turtle kind of walks by, swims by And he says, uh, morning boys, how's the water? And they kind of look at each other and keep swimming. And then they stop and say, one fish says to the other, what the heck is water? And he said it was a good parable, but it is kind of profound if you think about it, because obviously for the fish who has never known anything but water, there is no concept of water. There is, there's no reason for him to think about the existence of water. It just is, and so it is with consumerism. For us, we are the fish. Consumerism is the water, and most of us never stop to think about whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. What I'm trying to do this morning is to show you that our way of living, the economical system that we live in and participate in and often actively and eagerly participate in is on a inevitable and constant collision course with the culture of the kingdom of God. And the Bible provides us with this binary choice. Jesus himself provides us with this binary choice between serving one or the other. You can't do both. So like I said, an impossible task unless God is gracious and, and, and reveals something to us that is so easily masked in our experience. Hey, here's what I'm going to do. I know we've been praying all morning about this, but I'm just, I'm just going to stop and pray now for God's grace to us, all right? Um, so this isn't a complete waste of time. Why don't you bow your heads with me? Father, we are utterly dependent on you right now. This is true every Sunday, every time we gather, every small group, every time we seek to know more of you, we're utterly dependent on you, but it seems like this is such an intractable part of our lives. I I almost despair that you can change us. And then I remember what Jesus said, for us it is impossible, but for you, Lord, nothing is impossible. So please be gracious, merciful, and kind to us now. Open our hearts, overcome that instinct we have to harden our hearts, to justify our actions. Please lay us bare, make us soft, change us. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen? All right, let's do it. Consumerism. The normal way that we arrange the economics of our world, the normal way that we live every single day is as consumers, part of a system of consumption. And this, as I say, uh, has no choice but to clash with Jesus' vision for the kingdom of God. We've just been through the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, uh, sorry, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Jesus outlines a vision, a manifesto for life in the kingdom that goes beyond just whether you should pray and how you should pray. It is an, a whole body, heart deep, single-minded vision for living in the kingdom of God that he has established. Christianity is nothing less than that. And so we find ourselves on this collision course between the, 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 the um, culture of consumption that we're actively part of and the vision for the kingdom that Jesus sets for us. Just, just think about this for a second. Let's read. Uh, first of all, like, it's probably helpful if I just define what consumerism is, all right? If we're going to talk about it, here's, here's a, a basic definition. Consumerism is an economic theory that consumer spending is the key to individual well-being and the most important factor driving a country's economic growth. Consumerist economies like ours depend on the consumption of goods and encourage their populations to purchase beyond their basic needs to keep the economy growing. Very uncontroversial definition of consumerism. Okay, so just, I'll just give, give you 10 seconds to just read back through that. Consumerist economies depend on the consumption of goods and encourage, and here's the, here's the key, encourage their populations to purchase beyond their basic needs to keep the economy growing. Now, you have that entrenched in our society over the past 100 years, not before then, but for the last hundred years, to the point now where it's just the water, it's just the water we live in, and that slams up against Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 12, let's read a little bit of what he says. Someone from the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? He then told them, listen, watch out. Watch out and be on your guard against all greed. Because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them a devastating parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I'll do this, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, 
you fool. You fool. This very night, your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? It's a collision. And I want us, at the very least, to come to terms with that fact. These, these two ways of being in the world are like oil and water. They don't mix. Now, how do we get here? I just realized I've burned about half of my time, and I'm, I'm literally on my first point. All right, so here's the thing. We're going to have to go super quick. The last hundred years... The last hundred years of history have put us in this position. So we just celebrated uh, Remembrance Day, the 11th of the 11th, um, 1918. The 11th, the 11th, 1918 was where the Paris Peace Accord was signed. Uh, the end of World War I was announced. The world went berserk. Everyone was stoked. Uh, and at that peace accord, standing pretty much next to Woodrow Wilson, the, the President of the United States in 1918, was a man named Edward Bernays. Very small, funny-looking, unassuming guy. Why was he there at the Paris Peace Accord for the most important date in modern history? The reason he was there is because he had been working with the American government. He was a genius when it came to figuring out how groups of people thought. How does a whole church or a whole city or a whole country think? And crucially, how can we help them think the way that we want them to think? He was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, and both of these men had a genius for, for figuring out how people thought. Early in his life, uh, Edward Bernays moved to America and he ended up working with the American government during the war effort on what they called propaganda. In fact, his, his major work, a book he wrote, is called Propaganda. And the whole idea was we need to, by propaganda, uh, rally the country around the war effort. We need everyone on board with this because it's going to cost us to win this war. We're experiencing now this now, like the price we're paying for the war effort in U Ukraine. It costs us to rally war efforts, and it costs the United States tons of effort and money and um, resources, and, and, and so they needed everyone to be on board with this, particularly for America, which um, up until World War I was a self-proclaimed non-interventionist state. They had no designs on intervening in anyone else's business. They just wanted to stick to themselves. And, and so to get everyone on board with this was going to take a great effort. Edward Bernays was the genius that got everybody on board with the war effort. And so he was invited to the Paris Peace Accord because he single-handedly almost got this, the nation of America on board with this through what he called propaganda. Now, after the World War, after World War I, uh, he realized a couple of things. First of all, he realized that the word propaganda had a negative connotation because of the Nazi propaganda regime. And so he coined an alternative term for prop propaganda. He called it public relations. And, uh, and we have PR to this day. And PR exists to um, figure out how large groups of people think and how to manipulate what they think. He found out that 
what he applied to the war effort could certainly work in peacetime and it could be used to make lots and lots and lots of money. All of the nations involved in the war effort post-war needed to increase their economy drastically and the way to do that is to get people to spend. Up until this point, there was advertising uh, before 1918, but the advertising was very different to advertising that we see today. Advertising was utilitarian, it was pragmatic. Coca-Cola would have advertising, they would say, are you thirsty? Buy Coke. Or a car company would say, do you need a car? We make good ones. Right? That was advertising. Completely different to what we have today. Very little advertising you see in any form is trying to meet a need or trying to speak to your logic. Edward Bernays, through Sigmund Freud, his uncle, understood that human beings, particularly in large groups, almost do nothing because of logic. Almost all of their decisions are based on illogical impulses. And so he pioneered a kind of advertising that spoke to the desires. He pioneered a kind of advertising that you see today where, um, where there is an illogical connection between the thing that you buy and the outcome that you hope for. Like every ad where a guy is sitting at a desk doing paperwork and he's so frustrated and then he thinks to himself, I'm just going to buy an SUV and suddenly he's in the wilderness and his wife is about 30 years younger than him and they're just fishing and have it like drinking. And, like, th there is no connection between his decision to buy an SUV and being on holiday. In fact, there is an inverse connection, right? Because to afford the SUV, he's got to stay longer at work doing paperwork and spending less time in his car. So there, it, there's no logic. And yet, we see that and we go, ah, it kind of would be nice to get a new SUV, you know? The, the post-war economy almost necessarily had to be augmented way beyond what people did naturally up until that point. Naturally, they would buy something, they would try and buy something that would last as long as possible, and they would use it and repair it and use it and repair it until it was absolutely extinct, right? And, and then they would be forced to go and buy something else. That was the, how the economy worked, always. Now, the, the, the necessity of the situation in post-war uh, Western countries was that we need people to buy stuff that they don't need, and this required a huge shift. So there's a guy at Lehman Brothers in the early uh, 20th century, and uh, his name was, uh, what was his name? Um, something like, yeah, Paul Mazur. This is what he said. This was, this was the whole game. We must shift people from a needs to a desires culture. People must be trained to desire, to want new things, even before the old have been entirely consumed. This was the mind-blowing idea. We must shape a new mentality. Man's desires must overshadow his needs. And Edward Bernays was the genius that got us all to be that way, by nature, it seems. He got us to the point where he could say this. I got a quote from him. He says, um, we are governed, our minds are molded, our tastes are formed, our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of in almost every act of our daily lives. We are 
dominated by the relatively small number of persons who pull the wires which control the public mind. Now, if there's someone who's the opposite of a conspiracy theorist, that's me. But I think he's right. And he's, he's one of the very few men in the world who knows it because he helped create it. So this guy, this funny little guy from the last century, I would say has more of an influence on your life than just about anyone else ever has or will. He's going to have more influence over your life, apart from God's grace, more influence than Jesus Christ himself. So, you know, all of this might be kind of moderately interesting. I, I find it fascinating. But the, 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 like, the question is, what's the problem? Like, what, why, why is the guy up the front saying, this is the biggest threat to your daily discipleship? What's the issue? We've got issues. Why is this one? The issue is that participating like we do, unfettered, unthinking, unchecked participation in this economic system brings us into this conflict, this conflict of kingdoms. And we say Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we say we are citizens of his kingdom, but by our actions and our participation in the system, we divide ourselves. And a kingdom divided against itself, Jesus says, cannot stand. Here are some facts. We are discipled more by Edward Bernays than by Jesus Christ. Even if you do the really weird thing of reading your Bible 30 minutes a day and sitting here and listening for, I was going to say 30 minutes, I don't know, make it an hour, I'm settling in now. Um, even if you do that and you pay attention for like 20% of this sermon, even if you do that and you're way ahead of most of the Christians around the place here, we've got no chance against this machine of consumerism. No chance. You, you imbibe, you uh, observe between four and 10,000 advertisements every day. No, no, not every year. Every day, four and 10,000 advertisements. How can we compete with that? I mean, apart from a miracle of God, like indwelling you by his spirit and constantly calling you to faithfulness to the Lord Jesus, I can't. we are discipled more by Bernays than Christ. Unlike the drug trade or human trafficking or something really insidious and pernicious and evil, unlike those things, we just don't see the goods trade being a similar kind of threat, right? Yeah. 
And so we joyfully participate in a system that is designed to bring us down. How much of your thoughts, just do a little uh, audit now, how, how much of your waking thoughts, feelings, and actions are devoted to getting money and spending it? How much of your waking thoughts, feelings, and actions are devoted to getting money and spending it? Now, occasionally, by God's grace, and I hope that's what is happening right now, like right now, by God's grace, occasionally, the Word of God smashes up against that which we participate in gleefully, joyfully, eagerly, every single day. Let me just give you some of Jesus' words. I'm not even going to comment on them. I'll give you five. Matthew 6, no one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Next, Luke 12, sell your possessions and give to the poor. I'm taking that right out of context. I don't even care. Mark 10, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Luke 12, watch out, be on your guard against all greed because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Matthew 13, this is fascinating. He's talking about, you know, the parable of the sower. He's talking about the seed of the word of God, the seed of the gospel being planted in the hearts of people. There's all these responses. There's only one that grows up to fruitful daily discipleship with Jesus. There's many reasons why the gospel gets choked. Here's one. One sown among the thorns. This is the one who hears the word, but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. Why does someone receive the gospel and then die spiritually? Worries of the world, deceitfulness of wealth. That's shocking to me. So, we're on this collision course. There can only be one victor. There can only be one Lord. There can only be one kingdom that prevails. Why is God opposed to consumerism? I've got four reasons. Four reasons why God is opposed to consumerism, and I want you to hear these things knowing that there is no way out of this for you or me. We live in a consumerist society. There is no way out of it. 
If we were suddenly to say, I'm only, you know, I'm not going to participate in this, and everyone in Australia said that, we would be plunged into poverty and death and ruin. Right? This is our system. What are you going to do as a citizen of the kingdom living in the kingdom of consumerism? What are you going to do knowing that here you have no lasting city, you seek a city that is to come. Here you have no citizenship. You owe nothing to this system. You're a follower of Jesus, a citizen of the kingdom, a member of God's household. Now, how will you live in the midst of this system? What I love about Jesus' Christianity is that it's countercultural. And if any of you spent any time in the counterculture, I used to be a little punk. And I mean that in every sense of the word. And what I loved about the punk scene, that it was, it was counterculture, it was challenging. They didn't have many ideas about what to do, but they had heaps of ideas about what was wrong. That was really easy for a young man to be a part of. What I love about Christianity is that it's countercultural and it gives you an alternative vision. So much alternative culture is just consumerism dressed up in weird clothes. Christianity is real counterculture. It's real punk rock. It's real alternative. So how are you going to live in the counterculture of Christianity in the midst of consumerism? Here's the reason why God is opposed to consumerism. First of all, it breeds covetousness. Hardly ever use that word anymore probably because it's too confronting for consumerists like us. You'll know that it's one of the big ten that God gives us. One of his commands is that we should not covet. And yet this system of consumerism absolutely depends on covetousness. What is one of the main drivers for you to go out and buy that thing? Why are so many of us like eagerly anticipating Advent? No. Christmas? No. Black Friday? Yes, sir. Like, why are we, why are we counting down? Why is our new Advent calendar counting down the days to Black Friggin' Friday? Because everyone else has got cool stuff, so I need it too. See my neighbor's car? You know, my, one of my neighbors has about, like, we, we don't, like, we live in Caroline Springs. And just about everyone that lives around me is working class. He, he has, it's got to be half a million dollars worth of cars in his garage. And every time he takes one out, I just go, ugh. And I break the commandments of God. Deuteronomy, bring it up. This is what God says. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This system of consumerism depends on covetousness. It breeds covetousness. It wants as much covetousness as possible. More coveting means more consuming. And in the end, the reason that this is a commandment is because God loves us you notice from that interaction that Judy read, that rich young ruler, what does it say? Jesus looked at him and loved him. 
That's why he told him to sell his possessions, because he loved him. Jesus loves us, and he sees us in this consumer culture, and he can see that we're the ones who are being consumed. The consumer is ultimately the one who gets consumed. This economic system has, uh, uh, this is just a fact, it has no feelings about your well-being. It does not care if you cannot afford that new car. It promises you good vibes if you buy it. And it has no sympathy for you when you, re- when you buy it and you realize, ah, I, can't, I want the new one now. Breeds covetousness. What's my second one there? Kills contentment. One of the, everyone look at me for a second. This is what I've learned. So convicting to me because I'm so discontent. But one of the jewels of Christian maturity, some of these older saints that you see around you and some of them who are not so old but are really mature in the faith, you know what marks them out? This is what I pick up on, contentment. Contentment. You know when Paul says, I can do all things through God who strengthens me, through Christ who strengthens me? He's not talking about like doing 25 pull-ups. He's talking about contentment. I've learned the secret of contentment. Consumerism kills contentment. For consumerism to work, for our economy to work, we cannot afford for you to be content with what you have. And so Christians are robbed of one of the jewels of Christian maturity and stunted in their growth. This system banks on discontentment. Check out what Paul says to his little protege, Timothy. He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. You want to be rich? Godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, that's what discontentment is. Oh, I'm craving it. I bought something five minutes ago, but I just, oh, I know there's a sale on it. JB, I'm just, I'm craving. Cra- right, those who crave it, some have wandered away on account of that craving. They've wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Why is God opposed to consumerism? Because it breeds covetousness and it kills contentment and it encourages exploitation. This is the great 
shame, hidden shame of consumerism. It encourages exploitation. Exploitation is not just a byproduct of consumerism. It enco- consumerism encourages exploitation. Why? Because if, if you're going to be a country that overproduces, or if you're going to be a, an economy that overproduces stuff and continually provides goods and services to people who don't need it, then you must exploit the people involved in manufacturing it. You have to. The whole system is dependent on exploitation. The whole system is dependent on factories full of people, people, people made in the image of God, some of them children, working 14 and 15 and 18 hour shifts without access to water so that you get a good deal on your T-shirt, your 25th T-shirt. This is sick. You can't be a Christian and be okay with this. In Australia, right, here's some facts. In Australia, we buy on average 15 kilograms of clothes each every year, 56 items of clothing each. Not sure we need that much, guys. Each item on average costs $6.50. Six bucks fifty. It's like an expensive coffee for that thing that was taken from raw materials and put together overseas and flown over here and then most of the profit of which goes to the people who own the store, right? That, that's what you're paying. And in order to make it as cheap as that, as cheap as possible, in order to make fast fashion, throwaway fashion, or phones, or cars, or anything else, someone has to pay. And it's almost never you or me. It's those who are exploited, those who are desperately poor and need to take any opportunity to get food on the table and therefore will endure just about anything so that you can buy your $6 t-shirt. It's a disgrace. What does God say about the exploitation of workers? Deuteronomy 24, do not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy. (laughs) Whether one of your brothers, right? One of, one of the Israelites, one of your team, or one of the resident aliens in a town in your land, anybody, you ought to pay him his wages each day before the sun sets because he is poor and depends on them. You know what we do? They are poor and depend on them, therefore we'll give them hardly anything and they'll take it. Complete inverse of God's heart. You know what? Those exploited ones, they cry out to the Lord God against us. And he says, you will be held guilty. Jesus' brother James was just like Jesus. He loved poor people. He hated exploitation. 
And he says in chapter 5 of his letter, look. No, he says, look. The pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out, and the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Not pulling many punches there, Jimmy. Exploitation is essential to the consumerist cause. What can you do? Like I said, we're in this. What are we going to do? Well, it turns out there's a lot you can do. A whole lot you can do. If you don't turn a blind eye to it. If you turn a blind eye to it, then do nothing by all means. But those cries are being heard by the Lord of armies. Something I'm a very big fan of is the Baptist World Aid um, Ethical Fashion Guide. Their 2022 version just came out like a week or so ago. This leaves us with no excuse. They have done all of the research on tons of brands that you guys will be buying all of the time and they give them a rating, each brand out of 100, on a few different criteria, I think six different criteria. Exploitation of workers, damage to the environment, sustainability, all kinds of important things. And, uh, and so all you have to do is go to their website, Baptist World Aid, download that guide or just use the online thing. You can search your brands and for the ones that you buy that have a terrible score, you, it's got an easy link. You just click it and you let them know that you're not standing for it. You let them know that the cries of the exploited classes are, are being heard by the Lord of Armies. You let them know that you're not going to buy their stuff anymore. Seek out the ones that get good scores and pay the extra money for them. The average score out of 100 from the brands that they canvassed is 29.8 or something. Not even 30 out of 100. And, the, and for the new companies that are trying to get a leg up in this consumerist economy, I think it's 9 out of 100. So here's what I'm doing. You don't have to do this because I'm not going to burden your conscience with anything that's not explicit in the Word of God, but I think if you put it all together, you should act. I've, I've just made a decision that, and this has taken me a couple of, the last couple of years to kind of get on top of this, but I'm not going to wear any clothes that don't get a 50. That's 50 out of 100. It very much limits your uh, repertoire, which for me is a blessing. And it costs you. You're going to have to save up money to buy good clothes that are made by good companies that actually pay people a living wage. But the, the feeling of wearing those clothes with a clear conscience is worth double the money you pay. You've got to get out of your mindset, though, like, ah, it's a $2 T-shirt, woo. Unless it's at a second-hand store, which is the best way for you to buy Full stop. Then have at it, buy as many $2 t-shirts as you want. Second hand is the way to go. 
ethical fashion guide, Baptist World Aid. For the love of God, just get it on your phone now. Last thing, just, I was going to apologize for going over time, but you guys keep telling me not to do that. So, all right. Last thing, last thing consumerism does, it, 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 it breeds covetousness, it kills contentment, it encourages exploitation, and it conceals eternity. And this is the worst of it. Like being an active participant, a joyful, eager, gleeful participant in consumerism, buying, buying, buying more than I need, throwing it away before I... One of the facts I learned in that thing was one quarter of Australians has bought something that they wore once and then threw away. What? What that does is, is, is it conceals eternity. It, it just it like puts this this blinker on and hides the reality of eternity from you. And that connection might not be as obvious as it, as it should be. But actively participating in this will shrink your view of eternity. It, 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 it so grabs a hold of the reins of your mind, as Edward Bernays said, so grabs a hold of the strings that your mind and your vision and your purview is shrunk down to this next thing that I am going to get. What am I saving for? What am I working for? What am I doing this job that I don't even like so that I can buy stuff that I'm not going to, even going to keep? All right? All of that shrinks your vision. Conceals eternity. If you have an eternal perspective, I promise you, that your lust for money and possessions is going to shrink. Terrible news for the economy. Really good news for you and your soul. Jesus said it in Matthew chapter 6. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Moth, rust, thieves, can't touch it. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your heart? John, in his first letter to his little church, I promise you I'm going to finish after I've read this, so at least just stick with me for this. This is, oh, he commands you. Christian, brother and sister, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride in one's possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world with its lust is passing away. But the one who does the will of God remains forever. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you love us enough to share with us the truth of our predicament. Lord Jesus, just like with that rich young ruler, every one of us is, is rich and part of a system that 
that, that, that drives us towards riches. And as with that man, you look at us and you love us. And you call us to something so much bigger, so much better, so much more eternal and significant. Father, I recognize the scent of the devil on this whole system of consumerism. And Lord, if there is anything demonic about it, then it must be that this system diminishes our joy in you and diminishes our vision for eternal life. Please bind the devil. Please liberate us from slavery. Please bring us into the land flowing with the milk and honey of your grace. Please save us. In Jesus' name, amen.